I apologize. So I'm offering the um, Beatitudes um, because I think it's Christ's way of um, putting the Jewish people in a context, but also doing something that points to what he's going to do that they would not have known. Not as, not, certainly not in its fullness. But there would have been no purpose in what he did here unless he were speaking to people who knew the commandments even if they never heard about the fruit of them. So this isn't strange or at odds with his father. It seems to me what he's doing is making clear the fruits of the Spirit for anybody who takes obedience of the commandments seriously. Okay. So when Jesus saw the crowd, he went up to the mountain, and after he'd sat down, his disciples came to him. He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the New Testament has not been written. He's saying this to people whom Yahweh spoke to in the commandments, but who, who didn't leave them with a sense of what the fruits of their obedience would be. Because if they'd followed the commandments the way God had intended them to, this is what they would have known, this condition of blessedness. Um, except in one sense, so Christ is looking back and telling people that they will be blessed for doing this, but he's also doing something in preparing them because he's going to make clear exactly what the cost is of following the commandment of his father. He's going to, have to, give, he's going to give up his life. Um, so my prayer tonight is that um, all of us take seriously the commandments that Christ have asked us to follow, to observe, with a great hope and a joy, um, a cause of rejoicing, knowing that these are the fruits. Um, none of these um, are the sorts of things that most people live for in the world. Um, mournful, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, the poor in spirit does not mean those who are poor. It means those who are poor in spirit. Those who don't have God. I mean, who, are, who want him, but lack him. They hunger for him. They're poor in spirit. Um, they're not one with him. So, um, um, let us all take some joy in knowing, um, finding a strength in knowing that in experiencing these, even though they're not the sorts of things that most people look for in our world, worldly desires, um, they are exactly 
um, what all of us would experience if we were obedient to God um, and followed Christ. So my prayer for all of us tonight is um, that we take the commandments seriously. And if we, if we miss sometimes because they're hard to follow, to know blessedness is um, what's promised us if we do follow them. I ask a special prayer for Mary and her son David. Watch over them. Um, be with Mary. Um, I'm not sure why she's not here, but I know she wouldn't miss unless we're serious. Be with her. Um, console her. Quiet her heart. Um, she's such a brave person, so she carries a lot. Um, if there's any way in the, she feels a weakness, give her strength. And um, s sorry, it was Natalia. Yeah, be with Natalia in her, um, it's a threshold moment, a time of decision. Um, um, all of us, um, you know, from teenage years to young adulthood are trying to find ourselves. Um, some of us don't do it when we're 80, but be with that young woman. Um, um, let her f find a strength in whatever she does in being close to you. And let her, um, her mother's heart quiet, trusting you. Give whatever counsel she can to her daughter um, and while she goes through this period of making a decision. I also ask a blessing on a good friend we just heard before we left our house. Be with Bob, Bob Kopecki. He's been a friend for ages. Um, he was admitted into the hospital, possibly to undergo heart surgery. We don't know at this point. Be with him. He's our age. Um, who knows what can happen in these things. Um, if it's your will that it's his time to leave, let his heart be consoled. He has a large, large heart. Uh, prepare his heart. Um, don't let him give in to anything here. It's not like him. But if it is his time, um, let him take a joy in leaving this world. Um, we are always glad for the strength that you give us in whenever we face something that's not easy for us. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Tonight I am going to try to um, do, be better <laughs> um, at getting through the parts of the book that I want to get through here um, because I want to I want to get us going to Dostoevsky. Before we start looking ahead. Um, um, Originally, we had planned to take next week off and come back the following week. Um, but I'm going to cancel that week, too. Um, I'd be glad for the extra time, to be honest with you. Um, but another thing has also come up. We learned from Karen the other day that Father's going to show that movie, Nef Nefarious, that I told you about, which is a real surprise to me. If, if he's showing this to an entire congregation, no, I mean, that, 
that's a pretty gutsy move because if, if, if this movie is about demonic possession, and I gather it is, for a priest to want <laughs> to, to invite a whole congregation to watch a movie like that is pretty gutsy. And it says to me, he wants his parish to straighten out in some way. <laughs> you don't give people a, a shock of evil unless, unless you want to say, get serious about some things here. So anyway, that movie is going to be there. Hmm? What's the name of the movie? Nefarious. Nefarious. Mm -hmm. So a week, next Monday. All right, next Monday at 6.30? Yes. Here, here, I don't know if they're bringing wine or food. It doesn't sound like it. Um, but the movie, so. Oh, really? I would recommend, I would recommend everybody come. We. Oh. 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 We have to sign up and the last time I looked there were 199 people signed up. Oh wow. What? It's gonna be over. I heard I heard they're gonna do it. They're gonna do it regularly. Number time? Yeah. Anyway here, listen, I wanna keep because we've got so we won't meet next Tuesday or the following Tuesday. And I was gonna plan to meet the Tuesday after that, but that day is July 4th, and um, the, the church is closed, so we won't meet again until July 11th. That means all of you should be finished with Brothers Karamazov by then. I don't want to hear any excuses when we meet again. Bob, Karen. <laughs> um, I, I want to come. I want to. I'm, I'm going to try to finish up Scarlet Letter because I really want to. I want to, to sort of give an opening on Brothers Karamazov because of its importance. Because um, I, I think it's an enormous. So July 11th, we will we will start Brothers Karamazov. Tonight, I'll just I'll give a, a few reflections, opening reflections on the book. But when we meet, then we start. The Brothers Karamazov came. So, um, Scarlet Letter. If you've got my notes, um, you can follow. I want to. I'm going to try to go through this quickly. Um, the great theme of this work is not clergy abuse, as one critic has it. You know that. Um, as I was reading it, or finishing um, the other night, I was thinking to myself, you might fault. Um, Dimsdale for his passivity but you cannot fault him for going after Hester or abusing his congregation he's a holy man um, when he we're gonna look at the forest scene in a few minutes when he leaves the forest and he cast in a sense like Hester taking off the letter he cast off sin we see him susceptible to those three temptations that we went through with the minister the old woman and the young girl but in each of those temptations, he doesn't give in to them. And it's three temptations, interestingly. Um, he's tempted, goes through things in his mind, but he doesn't give in to them. Hester's comment to him in the forest is, when he says, I'm too frail, I, I can't go on. And it's, it's clear he is. He's debilitated. He's, um, he's, he's weakened to a point of a near death. She says to him, um, you're a holy man. 
um, you spent the last seven years in penance, you're a good man. You shouldn't be afraid of this. But he's carried his guilt for so long, it's eaten away at him, and he's close to death. The interesting thing, if we think about sexual abuse in this, is it seems to me, um, I told you D.H. Lawrence, who was a, um, one, of, one of the more important um, English writers in the last century, said that he thought Hester seduced him to death. We don't know. We don't know. But at least one thing in support of his claim is that when they're in the forest, um, Dimsdale cannot shake off his guilt. He can't. He says, I can't do it. She's the one who encourages him to do it, and she's the one who encourages him to flee. She's the one who takes off the badge, and when she does, she lets down her hair, and she lets her natural beauty show, which just raises a question the part that she played in their fall. We don't know. But for anybody to claim that this book is about clergy abuse is to abuse this book. I cannot say that strongly. That, that is a form of abuse that's real, that people can just make literature. I, I just so believe this. If you can make literature whatever you want, then how can you not do that with your wife or your husband or your children? If that's the way you approach the world, that you can just turn it to make what you want, if you can abuse a book like that, if that's the way you see things, then how are you doing anything differently what the Puritans are doing at the beginning of the book? When they're just condemning because they think they're so good. This is not about clergy abuse. If it's about anything, wait, wait, it might be secondarily about adultery because it is so present. And I don't think we should under, underestimate that sin, it's sexual, because to play loose with sexuality is to play loose with a direct connection with God. Because it's through our sexual relationship that we bring life into the world, that we, sh we share in God's creative activity. So to play loose with sexuality is um, to, pl to play loose with the creative role we play we have with God in continuing the work of creation. I hope I said that emphatically enough. Yeah? And I think that's why it's such a common sin. It, I mean, it, it's one of the heightened pleasures of our life. It's easy to give into. I mean, we only have to look at our world to see it. And by the way, it's so clear that Hawthorne affirms it in the forest. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. He, he is not puritanical in his views of sex. He just is not. So, um, it's not about clergy abuse. If it's about sex and adultery, I believe it's only secondarily so. It's principally about reading. It's about how we look at each other, the spirit we bring to the way that we read each other. Sometimes I get a little impatient with Hawthorne, but if you go through the book, he's constantly saying, this is a sign of something, this is an emblem of something, this is a type of something, this is a symbol. He almost cannot write a page without framing things in, in such a way that we have to look and see, this is a sign of something, what is it? What do we make of it? Because it's, it's clear from the Protestant Calvinistic view in the community that they, they see certain things as signs and read them that way. Hester's pregnancy is a sign that she's damned. That's, the way, that's why the four matrons at the beginning say, kill her. 
burn, burn an S, you know, an SL onto her forehead. Hey. Crucify her. Hey. Hmm? Sorry. Hey. I can't hear you, Doc. Letter A. Hey, yeah. Um, so it's principally about reading and the way in which our beliefs partly share, shape the way we read. If you're a Calvinist or um, a Lutheran, you're going to read the world very differently than you would if you were a Catholic. I've been harping in that through the whole, um, you know, our, our, the whole period we spent on the Gospels and, um, and I've said it before if you're, if you're a Protestant you believe that nature's depraved you're going to look at the world very differently than a Catholic who doesn't believe that who believes the, the world is good, that reason is good, it's weak, we need to take care of it um, I hope everybody's clear what he's, what, he, one would say, one, what he's critiquing is the black-white way of reading the world that these people have. And it's interesting to watch, I'm going to come to some conclusions about this in a minute, but it's interesting to watch him develop that because he'll show um, characters who treat the world when Hester has to go to the ministers to see about giving Pearl up. You know, they see Pearl as a demon, as an elf child, and... Um, and Hawthorne's the only one who enters into the interior and shows us there are things about Hester and Dimsdale that the other people don't see. They don't read her well, and they don't read their minister well. They think he's a holy man. I mean, the, one of the greatest ironies of the book, they all look at him as being holy, and he's the father of... So while they condemn her, and she has to bear this, um, they don't see him. And it's one of the things that eats away at him that I think leads to his death at the end. Sorry, Bob. Well, my question there is just, I understand everybody's got a different view, but who determines what is the right view? I think the, the whole steadier town was bad in that punishing her continuously. You know, uh, yeah. I think, uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, but I guess that's my question is, who do you determine is making the right decisions when you say you're reading them? Who's reading who right? Well, I think we can say this. I mean, it, you tell me if you don't agree with this because then I'm not sure that I can answer your question. But I think it's pretty clear in the beginning that the four of the five matrons bring a hatred and a self-righteous cruelty to the way they read. And the interesting thing that's implied in this whole book is behind this whole book is Christ. You know, we, it's been our question always, where is Christ present in this? Because Christ himself and the woman in adultery shamed the judges. They left without stoning her to death. But he didn't, he didn't just um, excuse her. He put her back under the law and said, go and sin no more. Priests continually forget that. It drives me nuts. But Christ is saying, um, get the log out of your own eye before you take the splinter out of somebody else's. Um, bear a cross, suffer for somebody else, give yourself up for somebody. It seems to me the one thing we can say about this book, that the one person who does that most completely, I'm giving away my argument, but hold off on it, is Hawthorne. The spirit that he brings to his treatment, remember he begins in the Custom House saying, I, I'm ashamed of my ancestors. I want to make up for their crimes. The whole motive of, is doing that. 
I think what he does is bring a charity to the way he treats people in a way that's amazing and in a way that's at odds with what goes on in the book. You have to say about four of those five matrons that they're cruel and that if they'd had their way they would have killed her. And clearly according to the gospel if that's the truth they're out of line with that truth even though they say they're being Christians. I mean it's one of the sins of, the, of hypocrisy that they you know, they say they're following Christ when, as a matter of fact, they're not. It's one of the ironies of the book. So the, yeah. I like that, that she, um, you know, she, she has her, she, you know, Hawthorne also redeems her, you know, uh, telling her that she's, she's a self, um, self-made sister of charity and how she, you know, does everything in her time and in her small income to help other people. Yep. How, how she switch, you know, her way. Yeah. Of behaving and of being. Yeah. I I would just, I would qualify that as she's not self-made because Hawthorne makes it clear that whenever she, um, she's tempted to put away that badge, the the shame, she fails. That part of her power comes from her accepting her own sin. It's what sets, Hawthorne's making it very clear. The people who think they're without sin tend to be the most self-righteous. You could say the great theme of this book is in keeping with Christ that um, it's only when a person accepts his sin that he can learn to turn to God and love other people the way he should. Christ asked every human being to be perfect. I I don't want to leave any confusion about this. He asked everybody to be perfect. But clearly the danger is that when people think they're perfect and and they get self-righteous about it, they're not very attractive people. So we do have a way of making judgments about the people. And the interesting thing about the book, um, as Cecilia said, is is, um, to watch the change that Hester undergoes. She comes back with the letter on when she returns home. Um, And the way in which the townspeople change towards her that we're, we're watching a people change because of the way some people learn to bear their sins and the way it helps them become better people. I think that's at the center of the book. So the, the, the principal theme of the book is reading and doing it in a way that is in keeping with the Bible and um, And being honest about their own sins. Because if they are, and they stand in the world aware of their own sins, it helps them bring a mercy to what other people do, instead of being self-righteous or, self- or judgmental. It seems to me those are, that's the spirit at the heart of this book. Okay. And, and just an ironic way to illustrate this, that Hawthorne shows that people who accept their own sins are more truthful, can see into the hearts of other people better. That people who are self-righteous tend to be blind. They can only, they, they look at surfaces and, and are judgmental. They read signs differently. Okay? One of the interesting um, pieces of evidence in support of that, it, and it's in the most unlikely source, is, Mist, is Mistress Higgins, Hibbins. You know, she's that witch lady. Um, and Pearl and everybody else associates her with the dark man and the black, you know, the black forest and the black man. At the, she's the only one 
who sees Hester and Dimsdale as they are. She knows that they're in sin. She knows that Dimsdale, and at the very end, when Hester comes to the procession and everybody is coming for the inaugural address, she's the one who prophesies what he's going to do. It's that seeing sin can make somebody like um, Chillingsworth, um, what to describe him, totally misread another person, condemn them because of their sin. You know. Um, or it can, help, it can help somebody see more deeply into another person's heart. And clearly it does that for Hester. Because she's the one all the women turn to. Because they know they, they will find a sympathetic heart. And I think I mentioned this last week. Priests are in that position. Because priests hear confessions all the time. They'll either condemn people and put them off. Or they'll bring a mercy and open up a community. Encourage people to accept their sins, to struggle to put them away. No priest wants us to stay in our sins. Christ asks us to come out of them. But I think every priest wants to bring mercy, and I think everybody who goes to confession, I'm assuming, in receiving mercy, want to bring that to what we do with other people, to not get self-righteous about ourselves. So it seems to me that's the defining spirit of Scarlet Letter. And you know that the argument that I'm making is, is that this book, and I'll attempt to show it in a minute, is an actual refounding. He is actually, this is a refounding book. He's doing something to rewrite history, to bring back into, that pure, into our pure beginnings a spirit it lacked. Bob, could I ask? Sure. Uh, I'm fascinated by the character of Pearl. And, and I don't know quite how to take her sometimes. You just mentioned that uh, Hester does, she does best when she is wearing this, the letter and acknowledges her own sin. Now when they're in the forest, Pearl is furious with Hester because she's taken yep. off the letter. Yep. And she won't even approach her. Yep. So does Pearl understand that that's what's going on there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, we're going right there. No, 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 you're good. Um, I'm a little bit hesitant to go anywhere with it because, you know, to try to answer it in a more complete way because that's where we're going to go if you're okay to wait. Let's go there. Can we all... I want to go... There's there's two sections that I want to look at right now to close this book, okay? One of them is the forest scene, and the other is the inaugural address, okay? Um, because both of those turn the action. We know that Chillingworth is getting close to killing Dimsdale, not openly, but indirectly. And that Dimsdale is losing his life, and Hester wants to make a meeting with him in the forest because she wants to let him know what Chillingsworth is doing. And she will tell him, Dimsdale's first response is, I can't forgive you for what you've done, and then he does. But she realizes that, that Chillingsworth is crippling Dimsdale, and she doesn't want to be responsible for that anymore, so she opens up. So the action turns in the forest, okay? and in the inaugural address. So I want to look at both of those to see exactly the role they play in the unfolding of this action, where we're going, what the ultimate meaning of the Scarlet Letter is. So let's go there, okay? 
So turn to chapter 16. In my book, it's page 152, but I, you know, we've got different books, so um, I'll give you the chapter in a second. It's a forest walk, just a, f a few pages in. Um, Hester is hoping she can run into Dimsdale, but in this forest scene, a lot happens between Hester and Pearl, and then a lot will happen between Hester and Dimsdale and Pearl. So it's going to go to this question of how we're to read Pearl and how she is. Um, on 152 on my page, um, the two are together, mother and daughter, and, and Pearl says, Mother, the sunshine does not love you. It runs away and hides itself because it's afraid of something on your bosom. Now see, there it is, plain, a good way off. Stand you here and let me run and catch it. I'm but a child. It will not flee from me, for I wear nothing on my bosom. Here's where I get impatient of Hawthorne. And I shouldn't inflict this on you, but because I love him. I really do love him. But it's like Hawthorne to say, the sun came out on Pearl, the sun didn't come out on... The, a modern author would not do that because it's too symbolic. It's too obviously symbolic. What he's doing is using things to make a point. It's like there's a catechetical aspect to his writing. So he's setting up symbols. The sun won't fall on Hester, but it'll fall on Pearl. And it'll just, you know, little things like that. But just be aware, okay, that in, in terms of the, the scene right now, in the natural world, the sun sh um, shows its fondness for Pearl, but seems to be reluctant to offer itself to Hester. Um, and in this mood, while we're in the forest, and the two are together, um, it, it allows Pearl of freedom finally to engage with her mother some important questions. Um, the mother gets tired of Pearl with her antics and um, and, the, and the girl says, tell me a story. A story child, Hester says, about what? Oh, a story about the black man. How he haunts this forest and carries a book with him, a big heavy book with iron clasps, and how this ugly black man offers his book and an iron pen to everybody that meets him here among the trees. And they are to write their names with their own blood. And then he sets his mark on their bosoms. Did thou ever meet the black man here? Now, unless, just in case this sounds too exaggerated, imagine a young child growing up in Puritan beginning America in that founding generation, where the, the people tended to wear dark clothes, very somber, very severe, very Puritan, in the way they responded to their children. Could a child grow up in that atmosphere and not feel things, even if she couldn't articulate them? She'd have a sense of darkness or blackness or severity or the black man. That would be a part of her language. If you, if you were a child growing up in modern America, it would be fun, Chick-fil-A, you know, park, fun. At the t I mean, it would, be, it would be nothing but amusement and fun. And a child growing up that way would grow up expecting to have fun all of her life. So Hawthorne's just, in one sense, whatever we say about his technique, he's still being faithful to a fact of life. Children respond to their environment, and they will sense things long before they can ever articulate them. They'll be sensitive to things, feel them. They'll feel a, a black book. She must have heard the black man in the forest. You know, um, Hibbins is you know, famous for going into the forest. 
So she's asking her mother, did you ever go into the forest? Did you, have you met him? Dimsdale comes and approaches, and this is in the pastor and his uh, parishioner, chapter 17. And the two are finally together after seven years of being separated by masks. And even if Hester wears an emblem on her breast, she's still behind a mask because she does, um, she, there's nobody in whom she can confide her feelings. Um, remember the scene when she went to the meet with the ministers to see about Pearl and she was faced with the threat that they might take her away? She was on the point of suicide. Hibben says that, you know, and she, she would have gone into the forest and committed sin. And, and there's even one point in the story where she thinks about killing Pearl because she thinks Pearl's a demon elf. And Hawthorne used that phrase, the scarlet letter had not done its work. So whenever she tried to free herself of the burden of that sin, she always placed herself in danger. So it's not like a modern feminist saying self-made. Whatever, whatever, in whatever way she grows, it comes with her experiences of her own sin and her capacity to be sympathetic, more sympathetic with other people. The two meet, and Hester, or um, Dimsdale says, Hester, hast thou found peace? She smiled drearily, looking upon her bosom. Hast thou? And he says, no, that he, um, um, he's become more bitter in time and, and more disparaged, just eating him away. Um, at the bottom of page 158 for me. More misery, Hester. As concerns the good which I, mere to, which I appear to do, I have no faith in it. I have no faith in it. It must needs be a delusion. What can a ruined soul like mine affect towards the redemption of other souls? Or a polluted soul? Imagine him. He's the minister. He looks after the souls of this people. What he's saying right now is my guilt has kept me from performing my function. And as for the people's reverence, would that it were turned to scorn and hatred. He knows he deserves it. He's living a lie. It's eating him away and he knows. Canst thou deem it, Hester, a consolation that I must stand up in my pulpit and meet so many eyes turned upward to my face as if the light of heaven were, um, were beaming from it? Must see my flock hungry for the truth and listen to my words as if a tongue of Pentecost were speaking and then look inward and discern the black reality of what they idolize. I have laughed in bitterness and agony of heart at the contrast between what I seem and what I am, and Satan laughs at it. Imagine somebody growing up living with a sense of how dark his sins are. Um, um, and by the way, I, we, we haven't, I, I think when we get to short stories, I'm not sure that we're going to do Hawthorne. We may do a couple of his short stories, but one of them is called um, Young Goodman Brown. Young Goodman Brown is a young is a young good Christian. He's a probably twenty five year old twenty. He's young. He's a young man. He lives his faith, and one and one evening he's he's helped to go into the forest. And what he finds in the forest is that everybody that he looked up to is participating in black mass. It's that moment when any one of us grows up idealizing somebody. And then is disillusion when we find out that person has these sins. So either we get stronger in our faith 
or we give it up. And what happens in that story is his faith disappears because the ground of it in his mind was lost. So it's, it's about reading again. He thought all of these people were these sanctified people and he learns that they're not. And the cost of that is he gives up his faith. So this is not a small concern for Hawthorne and um, for, for modern Christians. Um, she tells him about um, Chillingworth. Um, Wilt thou forgive me? Wilt thou forget? I do forgive though, Hester. Um, I freely forgive you now. May God forgive us both. We are not, Hester, the worst sinners in the world. There is one worse than even the polluted priest. The old man's revenge has been blacker than my sin. He has violated in cold blood the sanctity of a human heart. Thou and I, Hester, never did so. Never, never whispered she what we did. So important. What we did had a... Now, hold on. She's married. He's a priest. She's saying what we did had a consecration of its own. We felt it so. We said so. We touch her. So there was a natural love between them that she's still holding on to while he can only find bad in the world. Okay. The, the question, I don't want to get into this, but it seems to me one of the ways of putting this into perspective is this. As a minister, he's asked to forgive everybody. How forgiving are people in this community? And more importantly, more to the point, how forgiving is he of himself? I mean, the one thing we can say about Dimsdale is he, and, and we'll see it when, when, when he first learns that Chillingworth is working on him, he's, he's more concerned, it seems to me, he's more concerned that Chillingworth knows He's ashamed that anybody would know about it. That's not the same thing. He's, he's trying to hold on to an appearance still. So he lives in absolute despair and self-pity. How forgiving of his sin is he? Is everybody following? His whole role as a minister should be to bring Christ to people. They don't have the sacraments there, which cuts their world in half. But um, He lives in despair. It's eaten him away. How forgiving of himself is he? Okay, a flood of sunshine. This is where it gets to the point. Um, it's at this point that Hester encouraged the, encourages them to, um, to um, flee. Um, this is a flood of sunshine, and I want to pay close attention to this because it's so important. Dimsdale, or, or Hawthorne, says a couple pages in, is the paragraph that says, Thus we seem to see that as regard Hester Prince. This is him describing his characters. And he says in the middle of that paragraph, And he, the stern and sad truth, spoken that the breach which guilt had once made into the human soul is never in this mortal state repaired. It may be wretched and guarded so that an enemy shall not force his way in again, might even in the subsequent assaults select some other avenue. But he says, but it will always be there. We talked about, Mike asked the question last week, remember that people go to Dimsdale to be forgiven. They come to him in his office and he forgives them. Is there no different, what's the difference between a Protestant minister hearing a confession and, and bringing a forgiveness to hearing it and a Catholic confession in which a confession has actually taken place. What's the difference? Serious difference here. Ap crucial. Apostolic tradition 
apostolic succession, which was handed down in the Catholic Church? The belief is that only God can forgive sins. The most important thing to take away from this. Remember in this book, remember in the Gospel, the Jews became outraged when Christ took a position that he could forgive somebody their sins. That was a form of blasphemy because only God can forgive. When a priest forgives, it's not a subjective response of it, it's an emotional response to a fallen prisoner. Um, he's acting in the place of Christ, handed down in a tradition, bringing God's forgiveness to that soul. It has an objective reality whose source is divine. It's not the same thing as a human pardoning another human being. Although Christ has made it clear since then that we're asked to forgive, he said to Peter, um, whom you loosen, you loosen, whom you, you know, he handed on that power. But the power comes from God. And here, um, it's interesting, Hawthorne is describing the sin as once it's committed, it can't be closed. Once again, it just reminds me of the difference between the faiths at issue here. The, the, the weakness will always be there in a human being, whatever our sins are, they'll always be there. But um, we also understand that by going to confession, we are absolved. It's one of the reasons why we should grow in mercy because we receive that mercy from God, why we should take something divine-like in our forgiveness to other people. Does it mean we don't take stands? I don't believe so. Christ doesn't stop taking stands. We're still asked to, these, this is Christ, we're still asked to be just, to bring justice to the world, and we're asked to bring a charity to the way we bring justice. Those are our commandments. Um, it's at this point, um, it's describing, Hester's encouraging him to flee, and she says, that will go. The decision once made, now this is crucial, I think, for the story. The decision once made a glow of strange enjoyment through its flickering brightness over the trouble of his breast. It was exhilarating effect it was the exhilarating effect upon a prisoner just escaped from the dungeon of his own heart of breathing the wild, free atmosphere of an unredeemed, unchristianized, lawless region. His spirit rose. It's like he came to life again when he's been dying. Do I feel joy again, cried he, wondering at himself. Methought the germ of it was dead in me. Oh, Hester, thou art my better angel. I seem to have flung, have flung myself you know, sick away. Let us not look back, said, the past is gone. Where should we, wherefore should we linger upon it now? See with this symbol. So, they've decided to flee. She's been the one encouraging him. Um, he takes it seriously and it's as if his past is, can be thrown away and they can do it. He can be free again. So speaking, she undid the clasp that fastened the scarlet letter and taking it from her bosom threw it away. She lets her hair down, um, the stigma gone, Hester heaved a long, deep sigh in which the burden of shame and anguish departed from her spirit. Oh, exquisite relief. She had not known the weight until she felt the freedom. Go down, there played around her mouth and beamed out of her eyes a radiant and tender smile that seemed gushing from her very heart of womanhood. A crimson flush was glowing in her cheek that had long been pale. Her sex, her youth, and the whole richness of her beauty came back from what men call the irre irrevocable past. Um, 
all at once go down a few lines all at once as with a sudden smile of heaven forth burst the sunshine pouring very flood into the obscure forest gladdening each green leaf um, transmuting the yellow fallen ones to gold and gleaming it down the great trunks and the solemn trees the object that had made a shallow shadow heretofore embodied the brightness now the course of the little brook might be traced um, by its merry gleam um, afar into the woods heart of mystery which had become a mystery of joy such was the sympathy of nature that wild heathen nature of the forest never subjugated by human law um, it's at this point you remember that um, I'm going to skip this I'm going to um, just um, um, if I can't summarize it the two of them are overjoyed to be united again the sun beams down in approval Hester calls Pearl and Pearl comes and approaches and she sees that Hester does not have the, the scarlet A on her breast and she gets angry I mean she starts going wild she's just, by the way her actions are the actions that that later men would take as proof that that woman was a witch and it was on that, that basis that they killed him so she's hysterical she's shrieking she she's inarticulate she's so angry at what she sees and Hester tries to calm her and then she sees what's wrong and um, tells her to get the scarlet letter and Pearl says no you get it and it's only when Hester gets it and brings it back that Pearl crosses the stream and comes to her mother okay now I want to stop here for a minute to tackle some questions here what's going on how do we understand what's what's Hawthorne doing with the foreseeing the Sun approving coming down as the way it does um, Pearl refusing to cross the scene the brook until Hester puts the A on again and, and you know remember because we touched on this last week it's after Dimsdale leaves the forest that he goes and has those three temptations where he is consciously whispering something evil all he, he doesn't do it, it it's, he's intending to do it when he gets to the when he gets to back to his room it becomes clear that he's past those temptations he didn't give in to them but what's going on here in the forest how do we understand what's happening in this moment when Hester takes that A off her bosom and um, what's going on between the two of them and how are we to understand Pearl in her response to what's going on? There has been a transformation between them and, and they're, you know, they, they're starting to feel different but Pearl doesn't know that. For her it's, it's uh, I don't know who you are, this is, this is not what I know. Anybody else? Karen, what do you make of this? Can you speak up? It was what? Mm -hmm. was I think she's just saying that something is not right. Oh. Not yeah. I, obviously there's something more and I don't understand what it is. To me, something you said earlier is like it's right or it's wrong. With the sun shining, that's good. It's good and negative. And that get the shade, but that's bad. It was the letter, the 
the pearl coming for a mom, that's good, but only if. I mean, it's not good or bad here. Let me, let me pose this question to see if this... Uh, if any one of the Puritans in that town were to narrate this story in the forest, be, because in some sense, I think it's fair to say, they reenact their original sin. They're back. This is this unchristianized, you know, unredeemed, lawless, the passage that I read to you. Um, if, if a Puritan, let's say one of the four matrons in the beginning, who were so ready to condemn, if they were to see this scene, would they present it the same way Hawthorne is? What's the difference? They, they would be really dead back to the can't damnation, and we should have done this a long time ago. We shouldn't have let it get this far down the line. <laughs> is what they would be doing. Yeah. Because they, they would see it, and then it would have been re-believed in their head that this was really right way back when. So we spent all this time when we didn't need to do that. But so, yeah. But, what is Hawthorne doing with his treatment of the sun and the brook? Take the sun, just start with that. What is Hawthorne doing with his, the way he presents the sun that would be different from the way one of those matrons would present the scene if they were to present it? Well, the, sun, the sun is basically washing away the sin, I think. It's purifying and saying, okay, it's, it's past. Proceed on now. Here now, I don't know if they should go in the same way they were. Yeah. But 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 you are kind of forgiven here at this point in time. So, like a seal of approval. Can you flesh that out? See. Um, um, what how I see it is you have all this. So Hester said the past is gone. There's nothing we can do about that. But we have this future. So it's the sun that says. This is the way to that, you know, like, like yes, this is, this is what it is. Let's stop for a second. Let's say they did go, they fled with the approval of the sun. Would everything be okay? Would their life be okay? Probably not. I'd definitely not. <laughs> huh? I don't, yeah, I don't think no. so either. Yeah. I think what, let me offer my thought here because I want to, I want to get to the, I think what Hawthorne's showing us, um, remember um, that line that I read that Hester said, what we did had a consecration of its own? I think what Hawthorne's, I, it's extraordinary. He, he's so close to a Catholic world to me. It's just stunning, just stunning that he could have done this because he doesn't identify with his world. He's so critical of it. Um, but he brings a mercy to it. You know, it's not like he condemns it. But he brings a spirit to that world that world doesn't have. And it seems to me one of the things he brings is that nature is good. Their original act, even if it was sinful from some respect, had a consecration of its That is, nature is good. It's not fallen. It's not depraved. The modern pure, the Puritan then would have looked at nature as depraved. It's this unregimed, the dark place of the force. They would have condemned the act. What Hawthorne's showing is this was a good act. Nature's good. The sun approves. Can they stay in that act? No, they cannot. Because if they do, they flee and they try to hide from their past and they can't. The sin is going to be with them. But the difference is he's showing there's a glory here. There's some goodness to what happened, even if it involves a sin. The sun is approving. And it seems, what do you make of the brook? Oh, sorry, go ahead. What is the sun Nature. The nature is good and the sexual act in itself was a natural good. Um, 
Is it sanctified? Can it go on like that? He makes it clear, no. If they go on with the illusion that they can escape the past or act like they don't sin or they don't have a sin to atone for, they're wrong. He makes that clear. But what he's saying so clearly in this chapter is nature's good. It is a good thing. And it's one of the differences between the way the matrons would have, I mean, if go back to my question, if, if, they had, if they had presented, if they had narrated, told the story, they would have had nothing good to find in it. Sorry, go ahead. I was just, just going to say that I find it beautiful how he describes how everything takes a but, radiance. Yes, yes. At least at that moment. Yes. So it, they yes. see it. You know? yes. It's still the dark place. Yes. They see it differently. Yeah. And I thought that was beautiful. It, it, it's as if he's saying the instinct of love, the natural instinct of love is good. It is good. It's in nature. The, the Puritan mind couldn't have been farther away from that instinct. Everything they do is condemning. Nature's fouled. It's bad. There's a glory to this. I mean, you're, you know, you're picking up in that, the passages that are read where the sun turns the yellow leaves bright. You know. Um, so nature approves. It's his way of showing that there is a... Can the Puritan see it? I hope everybody's seeing that. He's bringing something to that world that that world utterly lacked. A whole different way of seeing the world. Could they remain in that state? No. Because there was a sin involved in it. And Hawthorne's exploring it. But it's not a black-white condemning, you know, um, he's seeing there's this beauty, her radiance, you know, as a woman. She lets her hair down. There's a natural beauty to her. Um, here, let's go on. Let me take the brook scene. What's going on with Pearl at the, sorry, go ahead, what? Go, no, I want to know. You tell me. She was away when that, when that conversion happened, so she doesn't understand. She's the product of that. I mean, she's the sin, according to She's the product of that sin. She carries it. Mike, what do you have to say about that? Well, I think that... Uh, Wait, is everybody clear? Hester says, bring it to me. She says, no, you go get it. And she's furious. Hester goes and gets it, puts it back on, and then Pearl comes back over, and there's a sort of peace, even though Dimsdale is... I mean, he can't make his peace with any of this, but but she comes back. So what what do we make of that? Uh, what is the brook? It's it's a boundary symbol. It's a symbol of a boundary. It's a threshold symbol. What's going on there? Well, Pearl is she's come to know her mother as uh, even if she didn't understand that the A stood for adultery. She understood that that mark, the community knew her mother because of that mark, and they knew her as an angel of mercy now. Uh, so I think that uh, a lot of Pearl's understanding and knowledge of her mother ties that, is tied to that A, even if it's not a full understanding. So when Hester takes it off, uh, she senses that she's turning into something different. What do you do with it, Doug? Well, everything that's being said... Can you speak up? Everything that's being said certainly is psychologically, I think, true. You know, a, a child who 
always with that symbol is going to be really disconcerted when that symbol is thrown away. But it seems to me there's the, the as good as he is as a psychologist, Hawthorne is always is also saying that there's a community that Dimsdale and Hester have violated. Their bodies are good, sex is good, all of that's true. But there's this community that they're a part of, and what they did violated that community, and violated the laws of that Reenacted it. Yeah. He has denied, put away what made them, even on the outskirts, part of the community. And it seems to me Pearl is, um, is standing, is standing with that sense, not completely <coughs> of the community the way it acts, but she's just, she's part of it. This is yeah. her life. I want to enlarge it just to, um, not just the community, because it seems to me one of Hawthorne's implied larger perspectives is divine. It's transcended, it's God. So what they've done is not just violate a, um, a community's religious codes, although they've done that. Um, they've also sinned, objectively, I mean, according to Christian beliefs. He's a, he's a minister, she's married. Um, they weren't legally married. She's pregnant. Um, his fault, he's concealed the fault, so he's being dishonest. There's a sin involved here. Um, and it seems to me one of the beauties of this chapter is, as I've tried to describe it, is that Hawthorne's showing that there's this extraordinary goodness to nature. Even in their love, you know, the, in, the impulse of it was good. Um, but, but what Hawthorne is showing us is that humans are in sin. And he makes that clear. This, you know, the, 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 that sent, particularly that sentence I read, this unredeemed Christian, lawless, um, hold on, sorry. Let me read that line again. The decision once made a glow of strange enjoyment through its flickering brightness over the trouble of his breast. It was the exhilaration effect upon a prisoner just escaped from a dungeon of breathing the wild, free atmosphere of an unredeemed, unchristianized, lawless region. We know that, and we know from the scene when he leaves the forest, natural man, whatever his goods are, cannot resist sin by, him, by himself. He needs help. Um, and that help has to be divine, I mean, clearly. But here in this chapter, it seems to me that such was the sympathy of nature, that God made nature good. It's not the way the Puritans have looked at it. So what we're seeing here is an, um, an affirmation of that goodness. I think what's going on with Pearl 
is that um, she's a product of that sin. She knows it intuitively. This is intuitively. Um, she's grown up aware that something's wrong. So even if she can't name it, you know, the way a child of seven maybe couldn't, she has some clear intuitive sense of it. For Hester to take that badge off is to be dishonest, to pretend to be somebody she's not. And I think Pearl has a sense of that just from having borne that burden. Because both of them, I mean, it's really to go to, um, to use Doc's context of the, of the, of the community. Hawthorne makes it clear, both of them, mother and child, have grown up as exiles. They don't belong to the community, they know it, they're exiles. In fact, he makes a point of saying it was her strength in dealing with that that gave her, or her ability to, to grow in that, that gave her the strength that she comes to at the end. She's not a child of mercy right now, or a sister of mercy. That'll come later. Um, but she's been growing in that direction because of the sin she bears. It's given her a sympathy with people. She, know, she knows that people are in sin. So the worst people are the ones who deny it. You know, they want to pretend like they're not in sin. So I think Pearl is, it, she's just showing something at, this is really interesting, something at a natural level that's aware of that sin. And she's honest enough as a child, she's not grown into deceptions, to be honest with her mother and, and angrily. No, you get it, put it on. So the, the, it seems to me that Brooke, <laughs> is an image defining two worlds. The natural unfallen world, this unredeemed world, the lines that I just wrote about, you know, the, the side that I just read, this wild, lawless... Okay, well, in my book, it's one... It's, it's about four pages in and chapter 18, The Flood of Sunshine. It, it begins with the... Um, oh, sorry, wait, wait. Sorry. It's about... Three, no, three pages in. Um, of breathing the wild, free atmosphere of an unredeemed, unchristianized, lawless region. When Pearl goes to the forest, remember, she's at home with the forest. All the animals come up to her. He even went so far as it could, could have been a legend. He, he says he's not sure. But she was one with that wild region. She was in nature. She was in that nature, that natural world. The question facing Pearl, for us as you know, readers of this, will she, will she become a woman? What kind of a woman will she become? Will she grow up pretending that man can live in innocence at the natural level without help? Or will man need help? The Christian world. I hope I'm being clear. There's two worlds defined on either side of that brook. One of them is this wild, lawless region. It's nature. It's unchristianized. It's not been baptized. The other is a Christian world in which baptism and sacraments and God all have a place. That brook defines those two worlds. She stands on the side of it as a natural child, recognizing there's something wrong. It won't be until her mother picks it up that she will go back to her. Because she seems to have some intuitive sense of how important that is for the world. And then what happens at the, at the uh, inaugural scene completes the action, I think. Let me stop here, unless there's any pressing questions, because I want to get to that inaugural where Dimsdale finally makes his confession. But it seems to me Pearl is an image of um, a product of sin. She's natural. 
but there's nothing yet to redeem her. Everything she does is wild and you know, it drives her mother mad. Um, she, she hasn't grown into sin yet, but she's old enough to have some intuitive sense that something's wrong if her mother takes that sin off. Yep, 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 yep. She knows. Yep. Yeah. There's a real hypocrisy. She can't articulate that, but she has an intuitive sense something's wrong. But I think it's important to see she's a product of that shin. She is in sin herself. She's a completely natural image. She doesn't stand on the side of a, she's on that side of that lawless, free, unchristian, you know, unbaptized region. Um, and she has some intuitive sense that her mother is not being honest in not bearing her sin. So let's go to the, um, the inaugural address because the whole novel takes us there and it, and, it, and it leaves us, it seems to me, with questions what this novel means. Um, go to chapter 21. The, um, it's verse. In chapter 21, the New England holiday, mother and, and daughter arrive in the marketplace which is decked out for a celebration. And it's, it's wonderful what Hawthorne does because he shows everybody's there. Even the Puritans are dressed up in colorful clothes. Something's going on. But the Puritans are there, the Indians are there, the sailors are there. Everybody's there. Everybody off the ship. It's a democratic community like Hawthorne's Pequot. Everybody's there. And, um, and Pearl asks if the minister will be there and what's going on. Um, she says, the mother says, um, he, he will, but he won't greet us. And she tells Pearl to be quiet when Pearl presses her question. Think not now of the minister, but look about thee and see how cheery is everybody's face today. The children have come from their schools, the grown people from their workshops and their fields on purpose to be up. For today, a new man is beginning to rule over them. And so has been the custom of mankind ever since. So this is an inaugural moment, but I just want to underscore that. This is a moment when a new man is going to appear. Now, does Hawthorne mean us to just take that literally because it's got a new governor? Or does the meaning of that new man go deeper? What's the new man who will appear? Okay. Now, the procession comes, and it's wonderful to to watch Hawthorne describe it. This is chapter 22, because he describes it in stages. First the music, then the soldiers, then then others, the men of evidence, and you know, and the prominent men, and then comes Dimsdale, in his feeble frame. Um, and this is a couple of page in, um, in which he's described. Hester Prynne, gazing steadfastly at the clergyman, felt a dreary influence come over her, but wherefore or whence she knew not, unless that he seemed so remote from her own sphere and utterly beyond her reach. One glance of recognition she had imagined must needs pass between them, because they just had this intimacy in the forest. Nothing. He shows nothing. He's back in his official... The world of officialdom is the, wor the world of public appearance in which so often as humans we hide. 
How deeply had they known each other then, and was this the man? She hardly knew him now. Miss Hibbins comes. This is, this is again, one of the great ironies, because she sees so well into the nature of sin. She says to Hester, when she comes up to her, she says, um, so when were you in the forest? What did you do? She knows she was there. Um, Many a church member saw I walking behind the music that has danced in the same measure with me when somebody was fiddler and it might be an Indian powwow or an Aplin wizard changing hands with us. That's but a trifle. When a woman knows the world, but this minister, couldst thou not tell, Hester, whether he was the same man that en encountered thee on the forest path? How does she know? She knows all human beings are a sin. And it's one of the functions she has to know. Madam, Hester, Madam, I know not what they do. She's lying. Um, she affirmed a personal connection between so many persons, herself among them, and the evil one. It was not for me to talk lightly of a learned and pious minister of the world like the Reverend Mr. Dimdale. Fie, woman, fie, cried the old lady, shaking her finger. One of the ironies is, <laughs> in some sense, you have to admire her. She's one of the most completely, she's like a fool in Shakespeare's tragedies. Truly, I mean, she sees things the way they are when everybody else is half covering up their lives. Um, Dost thou think I have been to the forest so many times and have yet no skill to judge who has been there? If you've not sinned and you don't know the sins of yourself, how can you be in a position to judge other people's sins? She knows, yea, though no leaf of the wild garlands which they wore while they danced be left in their hair. I know thee, Hester, for I behold the token. We may all see it in the sunshine, and it glows like a red flame in the dark. Thou wearest it openly, so there need be no question about that. But this minister, let me tell thee in thine ear, when the black man sees one of his own servants, signed and sealed, so shy of owning to the bond, as Reverend Dimsdale, he hath a way of ordering matters so that the mark shall be dissolved disclosed in open daylight to the eyes of all the world. That's a prophecy of what's going to happen. Um, there's two functions to Hibbins. One is, <laughs> all the women judge each other by their appearances. They want to be beautiful in appearance, to look lovely. Hibbins is ugly. She's foul. Nobody likes her. <laughs> She's... <laughs> She's one of the most honest characters in the whole of the, the novel. And it seems to me here part of her function is that she's an element of truth and what she says is prophetic because what she says will happen. It's about to happen. Now what happens next is, in my mind, nothing short of extraordinary. Hester's outside the church because she doesn't feel right and it's packed anyway. So she goes and stands right next to the scaffolding where she suffered her humiliation and listens to um, Dimsdale's sermon. And it's described as this sound like music flowing over through the church and out into the open and people are captivated by it. Hester Prynne listened with such intentness and sympathized so intimately that the sermon had throughout a meaning for her entirely apart from its indistinguishable words. She couldn't even hear it. What she heard was its spirit that you could hear something in his voice. And, and it's described as a plaintive voice, as if somebody 
spoke from carrying a sin so who could say more about it than somebody who didn't. Um, and yet, majestic as the voice sometimes became, there was forever an essential character of plaintiveness, a louder, low expression of anguish, the whisper or the shriek as it might conceive of suffering humanity that touched a sensibility in every bosom. Um, but even when the minister's voice grew high and commanding, when it gushed irrepressibly upward, when it assumed its utmost breast and power, so overfilling the church as to burst its way through the solid walls and diffuse itself in the open air, still if the auditor listened intently for the purpose he could detect the same cry of pain. What was it? Think about the difference between, if you take Shakespeare or Dante, if you read a, a, an author who's never experienced suffering or pain or sin, how well would that person be able to describe that in a story? And the difference, I mean, go back to my question earlier, if one of the four women, you know, had described this narrative, could they begin to get close to what Hawthorne is describing, you know, in scenes like this? During all this time, Hester stood statue-like at the foot of a scaffold. If the ministered voice has not kept her there, there would nevertheless have been an inevitable magnetism in that spot when she dated the first hour of her life of ignominy. There was a sense within her too ill-defined to be made a thought, but weighing heavily on her mind that her whole orb of life, both before and after, was connected with this spot as with one point that gave it you Remember how much Hawthorne loved Salem, the spot, the earth, the guilt of his ancestry. He, he didn't want to flee it. He felt called to redeem it, to, to pick up the past because it's who we are and try to redeem it, bring something better to it. So the sermon has its influence. People are bowled over by it. And then um, he makes his way to... Um, the scaffolding, and and then in that moment he calls Pearl up. This is in um, the the Revelation. It's 23, um, maybe three pages in or so, four pages in. He turned towards the scaffold and stretched forth his arm. Hester said, "Come hither, come, my little Pearl." It was a ghastly look with which he regarded them, but there was something at once tender and strangely triumphant in it. The child with the bird-like motion, which was one of her characteristics, flew to him and God, <laughs> flew to him and, and clasped her arms about his knees. Has she ever done anything like that before? Hester Prynne slowly as if impelled by inevitable fate and against her strongest will likewise drew near but paused before she reached him. At this instant, old Chillingworth, he thrusts himself. He wants to get up there and prevent what's about happening because he knows he wants to damn him. And Chillingworth is making it, I mean, Dimsdale is making it worse. He's, he's going to do something he should have done and never has done before. Um, Hester Prynne cried he with piercing earnest in the name of him so terribly so merciful gives me grace at this moment to do what for my own heavy sin and mischievous agony I withheld myself from doing seven years ago. Come hither now and twine thy strength about me. Thy strength hither but let it be guided by that which God hath granted me. This is not about self-making, self-fashioning. He's doing something he could not do without God's help and at this point he's asking Hester to help him do that. 
It's something he's not doing. Support me up yonder scaffold. He goes up um, and <laughs> um, Chillingworth says, Hadst thou sought the world over, there was no one place so secret, no place, no high place nor low place where thou could have escaped me except this guy. That is, the, the one place in which we're free is when we admit our sins to God because they no longer have hold over us. So to go to that spot of our sin, we all know that, right? That, by the way, that, in case there's a doubt about that was the fundamental truth of the Iliad. It's only when Achilles admits his fault that he's free, because what's he have to be afraid of anymore? Is it not better, he says, that, um, than what we dreamed of in the forest? I know not, I know not, she heard her, better yea, so we may both die, and little Pearl with. She's reluctant still. She's not fully accepted. She wanted to flee. She's having a hard time with this. For thee and Pearl be it as God shall order, said the minister, and God is merciful. It's like, God, it's finally, he's, he's, turn, he's, he's made his own sin less important than God's mercy. And he turns to God. God is merciful, let me now do that which he hath made plain before my sight. For Hester, I'm a dying man, so let me make haste to make my shame, to take my shame on me. Um, partly supported by Hester Prynne and holding one hand of a little pearl, Dimsdale turned to the dignified, venerable rulers, and now he's going to make his confession. People of New England, wait here, uh, watch this again. Yet overflowing with tearful sympathy as knowing that some deeper life matter, which is full of sin, was full of anguish and repentance likewise, was now to be laid open to them. The sun, but little past its meridian, shone down upon the clergy and gave a distinctness to his figure. There's the sun again. Except now it's of a different order. They're not in the forest. It's a public place. And he's assuming his role as minister. He said, people of New England, um, ye that have loved me, ye that have deemed me holy, behold me here, the one sinner of the world at last. At last I stand upon the spot where seven years since I should have stood. Here with this woman whose arm more than the little strength whereof I have crept hitherward sustains me at this dreadful moment from groveling down upon my face in, in our sins. Lo, the scarlet letter which Hester wears, Ye have all shuddered at it, wherever her walk hath been, wherever so miserably burdened, she may have hoped to find repose. It hath cast a lurid gleam of awe and horrible repugnance around about her. But there st stood one in the midst of you at whose brand of sin and infamy ye have not shuddered. He confesses it. Um, now at the death hour he stands up before you, he bids you look again at Hester's scarlet letter. He tells you that with all its mysterious horror, it is but the shadow of what he bears on his own breath. It is because he's concealed it. Um, and even in this, his own red stigma is no more than the type of what has seared his inmost breath. Behold, behold, a dreadful witness. Chillingworth, um, it's almost like he withers. <laughs> Because his whole being has been to hate, and without an object of hate, it's like he... By the way, that's as good an image of evil. Remember we said evil is a privation? It's just when that object is taken away, there's nothing there. May God forgive thee, said the minister, thou too hast deeply sinned. He passes, I mean, he forgives. 
my little pearl, said he feebly, and there was sweet and gentle smile over his face. God. As of a spirit sinking into deep repose, nay, now that the burden was removed, it seemed almost as if he would be sportive with the child. Dear little pearl, God, wilt thou kiss me now? Thou wouldst not yonder in the forest, but now wilt thou? Pearl kissed his lips, a spell was broken. The great scene of grief in which the wild infant bore a part had developed all her sympathies, and as her tears fell upon her father's cheek, they were the pledge that she would grow up amid human joy and sorrow, nor forever do battle with the world, but be a woman in it. Towards her mother, two pearls errand, as a messenger of anguish was all fulfilled. It's he says, I'm going to stop here because that's the, in the, in the last chapter, to just summarize it quickly, what we get is Faulkner, this is really wonderful. Remember, I, I, I described this technique earlier. It's a, it described of multiple options. He'll present a scene like the, remember when the A was spotted in the night and different people had different interpretations? He does that repeatedly where something will happen and he'll present different readings of it, you know, which we know is true. And people come out of this scene um, confused. Some have said it meant one thing, some said another, some said yet another. You know, so why does Hawthorne do that? And I'm going to just brush over this. Hester leaves shortly after this. Um, and she returns. Pearl grows up to get married. Chillingworth in, um, bequeathed his estate to her. She, she's a wealthy woman back in the old country. And um, Hester returns home. And she returns to the beach cottage um, with the badge on, and she begins to do her work of mercy again. And Hawthorne has an amazing description where he's describing a new kind of woman, a sister of mercy, who will, because she performs all these, she does things for people, she sews things, women come to her looking for help. And he describes this new kind of woman um, who will be a new kind of disciple. And I'll get to that in a minute, but before we do, what do we make of this um, inaugural moment? How are we to understand what happens to Hester and Dimsdale in that moment? And, and maybe more importantly, how are we to understand what happens with Pearl and why? Yeah. And she accepts him. Loves him. God, is it, huh? Love heals, yeah. Sorry? Love heals. Love heals, yeah. Well, it, it, truth heals here. It's like the truth makes an opening for love, finally, that, you know, that was locked up before. Um, Right. Yeah. 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 So it's like a little bit of perception there that now has come to light. It's a wonderful moment. I mean, if I were to try to describe it in a marriage. It's a wonderful moment in which a husband and wife 
Um, we're going to encounter this line in Brothers Karamazov, which I know you're all going to devour in the next couple of weeks. Um, there's a line in, in Brothers in which Father Zosima, who's one of the central characters, he, he'll be an inspiration to the main figure of the book, Alyosha, the young man. Al. There's three brothers, um, Ivan and Dmitri and Alyosha. And Alyosha is the one most inclined to holiness, to goodness. Um, the others have real struggles. So does Alyosha goes through a real trial. But his mentor is, is Father Zosima. And at one point we learn from, and every, almost everybody in the monastery turns on Father Zosima. They hate him because he's so well-liked and so holy. These are all priests. They're all priests. They hate him, curse him. But in, in his efforts to try to educate the priest, he has this line where he says, you won't be able to do whatever it is you're meant to do in the world unless you see yourself as the lowest of the lowly. It's only because he saw himself as the lowliest of the lowly that he would serve, like Christ or, or St. Francis. There's some way in which, in what's going on at this moment that Dimsdale stands in broad daylight, not afraid, not covering anything up, where he confesses his sin and he is with Hester. And in one sense, Hester now can be herself because she doesn't, so it's not a matter of pride anymore for her, because her pride has been pretty severe, I think. She's locked herself up in her own world. It's that the two of them, in the openness about their own sins, can now love each other more completely than they did before. And in that love, Pearl finds her place, I think, that she and Hester have been outsiders the whole time, um, but now because she's had some sense that something's with Dimsdale. Um, but she's there in the presence of what she learns, I think, in the moment, what she understood intuitively, but now in a different way. But this is her father and mother, and they're standing together in their sins, unafraid. Um, so it seems to me what happens in this moment is Hawthorne is correcting that old world. He's taking everything from Luther and Calvin and exposing its wrongs. And it's all in the direction of confession and a mercy. It's only in accepting one's sins that one really becomes who he is in a sinful way. And it's not that Hawthorne's saying we should lock ourselves up in our sins because he's not, but he is saying very clearly, it's not until we really accept our sins that we can that we will be able to bring to others the sympathy that we should. And I would say that's Christ-like. So if I were going to end, I, I want to get um, one of the, you know, that one of the questions we've been ending all of our works with is, is Christ in this work? And it seems to me he's everywhere in it in Hawthorne. And at the end, he's present in Dimsdale and Hester and even in some ways Pearl. So we're watching as a community being redeemed. It's godlike. We said this in Dante. For God, there's no past or future. Everything's present. So the closed isn't the past is not closed off from God. He can redeem things in the past. You know, there's no barriers to him. What Hawthorne's doing here is amazing. It, what he does makes it possible to redeem the past. He's taking us back to a past, and he's bringing into it something that past didn't have, and absolutely transformed it. He's making a new man. The community has been offered a redemption. 
Will everybody take it? We don't know because we've seen lots of people don't hear. But I think that's the significance of this moment and I think it's why it's, it's, it's such an extraordinary book. And it's why it belongs with uh, Moby Dick that the two of them were dealing with, you know, we've done Moby Dick now, the two of them were dealing with a crisis in Christianity and it was a Christianity that was failing, that it was failing to live its Christian identity, that we're in sin. Look at the modern world. <laughs> what, what, what is, what, one of the things you have to say is defining the modern world, that it doesn't believe it's in sin. It wants to create this new heaven here on earth um, they're the ones not in sin. They want to make a world over in their own image and get rid they want to get rid of Christians because Christians remind them that there's sin in the world. So everything they do is with this sort of self-righteous spirit of Hawthorne and Melville both said it, it's not until we admit that that we are not afraid that we can finally love the way we should think. Let me stop. Any questions or comments or how are you finding all of this? You did, have you read Scarlet Letter? A long time. Ages ago, yeah, yeah. That means you never read it. <laughs> I say that to everybody. I mean, what? Who? Who of us, when we're in high school, can can read these things? God, you have to grow up a little bit to. And that's that's going to be true for uh, Brothers Karamazov. Any questions or comments, or Mike? Yeah. You didn't. Uh, you didn't get to the comments about the in, in the conclusion about the prophetess. Yeah. So. I'm trying to avoid it. <laughs> okay. God, no, you're being kind to me. I was trying to avoid it. Here, let's do that. Okay, I'm going to throw it back at you, Mount. Here. What do you, What do you all do with this? Um, women more one of the things here let me let me make a broad generalization or you may disagree with but I think it's fairly accurate it seems to me one of the things that we learn from this book is that women are tougher than men men live in a public world in which they there this is the Iliad by the way this is absolutely the Iliad men live in a world in which they define themselves by their accomplishments so there's a tendency to see themselves in terms of, imagine what's, if, if I'm right, imagine what's going on with women who are determined to define their lives by entering a public, defining things in terms of power. All the men in this book live according to these outward things. To a, to a soul, except for Dimsdale, every one of them is insensitive. They do not see well, they don't love well, they're ministers, they've all got these public functions. It's officialdom, okay? Women have to suffer, and, and lots of them, I don't, I don't use the B word, I mean, they're, they are just nasty creatures. You know, the, the five women in the beginning are not the most admirable people. And the women tend to be the women except for those who sense some sympathy with Hester who turn to her. But women seem to have a strength, and it's particularly true of Hester in contrast to Dimsdale. Dimsdale's withering. He's concealing a sin behind a public appearance. She's not. And she's, and she's been an outcast. And Hawthorne will say she's derived a strength from that that gives her an independence of mind, a strength that other people don't have. Certainly not Dimsdale. So with that context, if I can, at the very end, Hawthorne says, 
Women more especially in the continually recurring trials of wounded, wasted, wrong, misplaced, or erring and sinful passion, but with the dreary burden of a heart unyielding because unvalued, and that is they don't define themselves in terms of public values, they're domestic, they're, they're more contained within the domestic world and so live more completely in their own emotional life, but means more suffering. Or with the dreary burdens of a heart unyielding because unvalued and unsought came to Hester's cottage demanding why they were so wretched and what the remedy. They didn't go to the ministers. Hester comforted and counseled them the best she might. She assured them too of her firm belief that at some brighter period when the world should have grown ripe for it, in heaven's own time a new truth would be revealed in order to establish the whole relation between man and woman on a sure ground of mutual happiness. Earlier in life, Hester vainly imagined that she herself might be the destined prophetess, but had long since recognized the impossibility that any mission of divine and mysterious truth should be confided to a woman stained with sin, bowed down with shame, or even burdened with a lifelong sorrow. The angel and apostle of the coming revelation must be a woman indeed, but lofty, pure, and beautiful, and wise. Moreover, not through dusky grief, but the ethereal medium of joy and showing how sacred love should make us happy by the truest test of a life successful to such an end. Okay, what do you make of that, Mike? <laughs> does he even, does Hawthorne know who he is? Uh, I can't believe that he would have written that about a woman without sin, without... He was well versed in teachings of the Catholic Church, I think. And so he, he must have known that he was describing someone like the Virgin Mary, the, you know, the, the, the Immaculate Conception. What do you do with that? Because Mary's of the past, she's not somebody still to come. So what do you do with that? He's talking about yeah. a woman yet to come. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't know. Michelle. <laughs> Cecilia, you're biting on this. Go ahead. Come on. No? I haven't read that part yet. <laughs> you don't need to. I just read it to you. Come on. What do you do with that? Anne, what do you do with that? I don't know that it's so much a woman, but it is qualities that are being admired of Karen. She what? Just reading the Oh. Here, let me offer something because we've got to. I, I, I wanted to leave time to start um, Dostoevsky, and I'm not going to be able to do it. Um, <laughs> sorry. What can I hear? Here, I, I'll, I'll give two minutes to Dostoevsky. Sorry. What's really interesting to me is that is that that is such a perfect description of Mary. His daughter will go on. Um, um, to become a nun. She'll enter a convent. She'll become the head of a new order, as a matter of fact. And it's just, and he, I, he, he yeah, sorry? Hawthorne's? Uh, 
Oh. Um, sorry. <laughs> it's such a perfect description of Mary that it just... The, the, I mean, the only thing that I can make of it, Mike, because the only woman who's ever fit that description is Mary. All women are in sin. All, all of us. Except Mary. So... Um, because she was given a grace to, you know, um, to do what she did. So the, the question that I'm left with when I read that passage, because it, it troubles me a little bit, I, I don't know what to make of it, is that it seems to me he, he's on his way to Catholicism. He, to me, he's <laughs> solidly at the center of the Catholic world, even if he doesn't know it. Um, that it's, it, it's as close a description I can imagine of a woman who's in Catholic religious orders. So a Mother Teresa, or take St. Catherine, or Hildegard, or take any of the saints. That um, a woman who, gives, who consecrates her life to God will, will enter a life um, struggling to realize that kind of purity. Um, and yet she, you know, she, she won't be Mary. She won't be given, that I'm aware of, any prevenient grace because only Mary was given it for Christ. But it's so close to that that it just makes me wonder if he doesn't, because it's such an idealized image, if he doesn't have on his mind religious orders of women. That when women um, enter orders, that kind, because she's a sister of mercy. I mean, he even describes that. That's a Catholic phrase. He's not explicitly, he's not espousing Catholicism, he's not pushing there, but it's just his sensibility is so steeped in religious thought. Anyway, I can't go anywhere except there, that, that, that he has, he realizes the importance of women and that, it, that when women approach that condition, they will be able to do more than women who don't. And Hester is a perfect example. She, um, she's not trying to be somebody. She's not trying to have power or appearance or what, what drives the men. You know, it defines the men's life. She is outside that world. But in terms of love and humility and bringing a community together because she brings a humility and love to what she does, there's nobody, nobody else like her in the book. The men don't come close. So, just because Mary's of the and the other thing is that I mean I agree with everything Doc it, Hester's she's just a wonderful example of human love in a, in a way that we don't find certainly not in the men um, but she says and it's interesting she aspired to that that she would have you know but couldn't because of her sin. It's hard, it's hard for me to imagine what Hawthorne's got in, to understand what Hawthorne's got in his mind because women don't exist in that kind of purity Ex unless they go into orders and some of them become saints. Um, and, and then what you see is 
women not doing things in the world's terms, it's not money, power, wealth, prestige. Remember the four natural goods? What are the four natural goods? Wealth, power, image, pleasure. Those are the things that define the secular order. The woman he's talking about has a kind of purity, and the closest image to that in the book, in my mind, is Hester. Anyway, let's stop, because it's... Um, let's stop. Um, I, want to, I want two minutes with Dostoevsky, and that's all I can do, but... Um, I'm glad we've done Moby Dick and um, Scarlet Letter, because if you look at all the other writers, Lots of whom I love. James Fenner Cooper I love. You know, um, there are not many other writers, but Fenner Cooper to me was just a great writer. But what Hawthorne and Melville do with Christianity and um, at a time of crisis when the Christian world is fading, just saintly remarkable what they do. Here, one, just one thought in Dostoevsky, and that's, I really wanted to lay out some things, but I'd like you to read this. I've, I've left some notes. I started um, downloading, uploading, whatever, to dropping into our file um, outlines on Dostoevsky. So I, I gave you, a, if you go online, um, you'll get the outlines for the first class, second class. You know, you can just go in, through and look at them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put in a separate folder under Dostoevsky in which I'm going to put historical stuff because there's so much going on historically that's important to understand. What's going on in Russia um, exemplifies everything that's going on in the West since, the, let's say, the 17th century. From the Reformation, 16th century, 17th century, and the Enlightenment ideas, Voltaire, Hobbes, Rousseau, Locke, all those men, What's going on radically changed the West. Absolutely radically changed it. New Enlightenment ideas. And at the center of them, center of them was getting rid of religion because religion belonged to an old world. It was just a form of superstition. So all of these men, particularly the what are called the social contract theorists, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, principally those men, um, put forth political theories that radically changed the modern world. We're living under them right now. I'll go under that. But what was happening in Russia was different in one sense. The one th important thing to be said about the West of Europe is that Europe grew up with a classical background. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Plato, Aristotle, all had a sense of a logos of something universal, a logos, a truth in nature. I'll, I'll try to make that clear when we come back again, but we've done it before, but I'll, I'll try to make it clear. Um, so in the West, we've always made a distinction between what the Catholic calls the natural law tradition, a philosophy about nature, and religion. Islam takes away that distinction. There's no difference. When you violate a law, you violate God's law. Yeah? Same thing in the, in the um, theocracy of uh, Salem. Hawthorne says that, that the law was a sacred thing. If you violated a law there, you were violating God. The Catholic always makes a distinction between natural law, philosophy, and laws of nature, and divine law. 
they merge, they overlap, they dovetail, but there's a difference. So that we can, we can be more moderate in the punishments that we give sinners or criminals. We don't look at, um, if the fact that somebody robs somebody, we don't look at that as a blasphemy against God, say. That's not true for the fundamentalist. It's not true for the, um, our Puritan beginnings. It's not true for Islam. Russia was called Holy Mother Russia. And, and I'll go into this um, in more detail when we meet again. But Peter, the Tsar of Russia, wanted to refashion Russia according to Enlightenment ideals. So what he did was take a traditional way of life that had been in existence through the whole Middle Ages, deeply Christian, deeply Christian, and modernize it with enlightened ideas. The effect of what he did was to dislocate that country. And what Brothers Karamazov is largely about is that fact. That this modern world entered an old traditional Christian world and shattered it. And what we're going to get is Russia during that period. And Dostoevsky is in some ways, he's like Melville and arguing, he's like Melville and Hawthorne because he's going to show us exactly what that meant. One of the beauties of what he's doing, um, I, and I'm going to say this because you know how, how much I value Moby Dick, he's going to go beyond Melville. What he shows us in Brothers Karamazov is exactly what's been going on in America for the last hundred years and more so today. So he's going to, even though it's about Russia, He's going to be showing us ourselves. It's a Christian people encountering an enlightened scientific world. So it's one of the most important works we can read to understand ourselves. That's how important it is. And I'd like you to begin here. If you just look at that sheet that I gave you, one of the books that Dostoevsky wrote was called The Possessed. That was one of its earliest titles. Um, Constant Garnett was the, one of the um, first translators of Brother Karamazov. That was the traditional ed, um, edit, edit um, edition that everybody used to read. But we've got another one now that I'd like you to get because I think it's probably a little bit better. Um, when she did Dostoevsky, the, the book that's, um, that she titled The Possessed created an argument. So I want to read this now and leave you with this. this these are my notes. The original Russian title is Besi, which means demons. There are three English translations, the possessed, the devils, the demons. Garnett's 1960 translation popularized the possessed, okay? But it set up quarrels. They argue that the possessed points in the wrong direction because Besi refers to acting subjects rather than passive objects. That is, it's not who's possessed, but the possessing influence, the demons who are working on taking possession of somebody. It's, it's interesting, what's Father going to be giving us in a week here? <laughs> Nefarious, which is about possession. Boy, don't overlook these coincidences, you guys. However, demons refers not to individuals who act in various immoral or criminal ways, but rather to the spiritual presences that possess them. That is, the beings that take... When we read Dante, we saw it. Demons actually take control of people, so that people relinquish themselves over to them. By the way, just as a... Do you, do you think anybody 
who was possessed by a demon um, how to put this would have any trouble receiving a sacrament if somebody were possessed could he receive the Eucharist no. I'd say no could a demon taking possession allow somebody to take me to stop and think if you ever get worried about it go to confession or take the Eucharist <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that partly facetiously but being take the, I've I, it's been a concern of mine for the last since we did the whole you know the book of the Bibles and um, when you take the sacraments away and you don't have God's help in things and Christianity, Christianity becomes a moral cult what do people do in dealing with demons um, so but here's where I wanted to go according to the translator Richard Pevere by the way that's this is the one I want you to get and remember just don't look for this because there's a forty dollar there's an edition of this for forty dollars don't get it it's the same edition it's fourteen dollars so it's it's Pevere and Larissa um, Volokonsky that's the edition you want to get this one but he said this which I believe is right on according to the translator Richard Pevere the demons are that legion of isms that came to Russia from the West idealism rationalism Piercism, materialism utilitarianism positivism socialism anarchism nihilism and underlying them all atheism where have you guys heard those words before no I'm serious where in what work John Paul in Fidia Ratio and G.K. Chesterton's orthodoxy name them all all of them they're addressing disorders in the West what's going on in Russia the importation of Western progressive ideals and what it does to Russia you got them all <laughs> from um, John Paul and and Chesterton in 1908 in orthodoxy the legion of eams isms that came to Russia from the West idealism rationalism empiricism materialism utilitarianism positivism socialism anarchism nihilism and underlying them all atheism Dostoevsky is going to say take God away you can do anything you want there's no reason for not doing it take God out of the picture do what you will the counter ideal expressed in the novel through the character of Ivan Shatov is that of an authentically Russian culture growing out of the people's inherent spirituality and faith. In a letter to his friend, Dostoevsky alludes to the episode in the exorcism of um, Gersini. Is that I'm not pronouncing anything? Gersasin, demoniac in the Gospel of Luke exactly the same thing happened in our country the devils went out of the Russian man and entered to a herd of swine these are drowned or will be drowned and the healed man from whom the devils have departed sits at the feet of Jesus that's part of the inspiration of Dostoevsky's work um, we're going to encounter something demonic we're going to actually have a scene in which a devil seems to meet with one of the major characters 
It's one of the most extraordinary books in the modern world. Read it. Read it. Okay. Don't raise. Just don't. Uh, where do we really finish when we meet in July 11th? Do you want us to read the whole book? No, 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 no. I'm pushing because I know, <laughs> I know, I know that's it's a struggle to read. Um, I, if, I mean, you got you guys are not freshmen in high school or sophomores. You know, they have their whole lives. You guys have got families and a thousand other things. So, um, generally, I try to when we did Moby Dick. You know, I, we do eight chapters a week, something that to me is manageable. We've got three weeks, so I'm pushing you to, because I'm, you know my, te I don't want to drag something out. I just think it, it loses, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want you to lose the feel of any of this because we drag it out. So I want to get through it. That means a little bit of pushing. I'm assuming nobody's going to read thoroughly you know, but it, it's a it's it's a really good book, and it it should fascinate you. But I know you get busy. Try to do, you know, ten chapters. They're not long. But I'm going to allow for about two months, you know, something like that to do this, which to me is ample time. I'm my great worry is dragging a thing out. I do I do not want to kill a work. I just do not, you know, and and that's not easy because. If we go through it too fast, nobody's going to be able to keep up. If we go through it too slow, it's... So I'm trying to allow us a period where we have to work at it and still get it done. So two months. You know, we've got three weeks. You, we have three weeks now. We won't meet for another three weeks, so you, know, you can get a jump on it and get going. Okay? Um, I'll see some of you, we'll see some of you next Monday. And um, we won't see you on 4th of July. You know that on our house, we have a tradition of reading. We do the Declaration. We do parts of the Constitution. We do the Gettysburg Address. We do um, Lincoln's second inaugural. First, take some passages from Reagan. Um, to me, it's a time to remember, God, particularly now, what our roots are and what we what we're trying to do that I think right now lots of people are trying to destroy so on the 4th of July I hope you'll make some time just to go back and think about some of those documents you know have a good 4th all of you stay healthy see you in a few weeks